Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. From the second floor of the AC building, one does not simply just walk to Mordor. It's a Lord of the Rings podcast. <laughs> All right, I'm here with uh, this is election shock therapy, but I'm here with my fellowship. Joining me on this quest is uh, Mitchell Crum, Andy Bramson, and Sam Alberry, and I'll be playing your wizard Gandalf. All right, I'm Chris Moore. <laughs> Guys, uh, although apparently had... one of us in this room actually has a Gandalf costume. That's true. At least it's one not of us. Me. <laughs> At least one of us. <laughs> At least one of us. Oh my, Chris, do you want to tell us anything? <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> We've uh, we got some nice feedback from our Star Wars breakdown, the po- breaking down of the politics of Star Wars uh, from a few weeks ago. So we're going to dive right in to Middle Earth, talk about some of the politics in Middle Earth. But first, we've got some really big Middle Earth heads here in the room today, and so I need to set some parameters, folks, for this okay. conversation. The J.R. Tolkien. Uh, who is the um, unless we unless we count his son is the sole author of the mythos of the of the Middle Earth universe right. wrote copiously mm-hmm. for centuries he didn't write for centuries <laughs> he wrote about centuries of historical yeah. detail occurring yeah. in Middle Earth we are going to intentionally delimit ourselves to the end of the third age the great years <laughs> yes. uh, moving into the fourth age now if you think I'm being um, obtuse by telling you all that basically what that means is if you've read the lord of the rings books or the hobbit or if you've watched the hobbit movies or the lord of the rings movies that's what we're talking about not the thousands of years that preceded them or the <laughs> hundreds of years that followed after right so be I'm, I'm looking directly at, Bra- right? at bramson as we talk <laughs> yeah, no, about no, no, this no. Those are, that's really all i really know i mean I still have yet, and this is a sort of sad confession of this podcast, but I've still yet to actually make it through the entire Silmarillion, right? Like, it just, every time I get burned out on all those names, I'm like, what on earth are we talking about? So, I'm hurting my nerd credentials here, but... Just a little bit. Um, I just love, a little bit. I love Do you the, speak the fluent the Elvish, though? I don't speak any okay. Elvish, fluent or otherwise. <laughs> Why is he here? Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> Come on, man. That's Come on, Mitch. Man. That's Mitch. <laughs> Uh, I can say oh, Elbereth, yeah. Githoniel, and all that sort of thing. But, okay. you know. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but oh, this is going to be fun. Than that. <laughs> this is going to be fun. All right. So uh, this is a rich mm. text. Uh, Star Wars is a rich text, too. But Star Wars is ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a spaghetti western. It's a spaghetti western right. in space. Yeah. Right. Uh, yep. Lord of the Rings is a high gothic epic. Yep. Not in space. <laughs> at least not yet. Give us some time. Yeah. Apparently there's a musical. <laughs> Apparently there's um, a musical. The musical is really good. <laughs> Mitch likes the musical. I I have questions. <laughs> Me too. 
So we're, we're a little mm. bit more grounded this time, but there's a lot of fantastic elements which could potentially illustrate politics. Mm-hmm. We have two goals for doing these kinds of podcasts. One is to suss out uh, both the political prospects and the political problems that exist in these fictional worlds. And then two, to yep. ask what, if anything, do these worlds tell us about the politics in our world? So let's start with the politics of Middle Earth. Uh, we're in the third age. Mm-hmm. Uh, men are on the scene. There are elves. There are dwarves. There are uh, various nefarious creatures. There's, a, there's some rings floating around. There's a lot going on here. So, gentlemen, what is the political system of, of Middle Earth? What is the political system of this universe? <laughs> oh, so, yeah. yeah, so this is, um, I, I was talking briefly with Andy about this yesterday, but um, I, think, I think there are a couple of, there are obviously several things going on, but I think part of what the breakdown looks like in Middle Earth is you're looking at various societies, and each of those mm-hmm. societies have different. Uh, and this is what makes the text so rich and the and the uh, world building so rich is you have d- different cultures, different right. ideals, things like that going on. Sure. You've got elves; they have their own thing going on. You've got dwarves. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I, you know, w- what I think is, <clears throat> in some ways at least, w- one of the most interesting parts is uh, Tolkien's sort of ideal politics, which mm. is in the Shire. And so if you think yes. about the politics right. of the Shire, um, in many ways, you know, and Tolkien brings this out in some of his uh, letters to his son and things like that, um, where he basically sees, he, he's, he's pretty mm-hmm. down on actual politics. I mean, at one point he actually yep. says that yep. wh- what he would like is he doesn't like to refer to things as the state. He likes to just refer to things like Winston's gang um, <laughs> or, uh, you know, or George's, or George's pals or something like that, right? And yeah. so he's, he's very negative about yeah. how he thinks about sort of institutions in that sense. And so if you look at the Shire, there aren't any major institutions and we're told that there's no institutions right um essentially there's like very little police um Mm -hmm. there's like a mayor but the mayor doesn't have much of a major actual political role things like that so Mm -hmm. it's like one of those towns that just has a bar or two right exactly because they do have bars oh yeah oh yeah and so and so i think what you're looking at in the politics of tolkien is in many ways sort of this politics of civil society on steroids um because essentially what essentially what tolkien is getting at is he thinks the hobbits can be ruled not by political institutions but simply by social customs and mores and the way things are done and so if you look at that you know you think about how how the politics works it's essentially this major you know they have all these traditions like they give each other you know the the mathems or whatever at their birthday or at birthday times and um you know they they mostly get along there's a lot of family politics right so you Mm -hmm. know there's different there's different uh both with the internal you know with the sackville bagginses and also external right with the different tooks and the brandy bucks and all this stuff right you got all these different family groups that are sort of jockeying at least some what friendly right. um, for you know space and but never and quite breaking the bounds of social conventions. Exactly, no. it's no. all under the it's all under these social conventions, social rules. It's all it's all, and again that's all basically civil society. It never breaks mm-hmm. out into mm-hmm. any kind of violence or needing um, you know a more top down, heavy handed. Um, you know, police or institutions yeah. or things like that. And so one of the things to think about is on the one hand that sort of feels. Um, uh, it feels quasi-realistic. I mean, you know, you, you, we know a lot of places that sort of where there's a, where there seems to be more. You know, you know. I guess I guess I, I should say I know. Like growing up in my town, I mean, that was very much how things felt. I mean, it, there were maybe I think there maybe were two police officers or something. But you know, most of the politics of the town that I grew up in was you know there were fa- there were the big families. You knew who right, they were, right. and you know they kind of you ran grew up the in town. Sicily. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean that was just kind of how you know that was, that was basically how it was. And so, uh, but on the other hand. One of the things I think this brings out, right? So on the one hand, you sort of have the ideal right. feel of it. But on the other hand, I think Tolkien also, I think, 
maybe intentionally, also brings out poten- some of the potential weaknesses here too. Yeah. I mean, one of the obvious weaknesses is without institutions, you have virtually no protection. So at the end of Return of the King, you know, Hobbiton is easily conquered by, it sounds like, just Saruman and Wormtongue. I mean, mm-hmm. if two people can conquer you, then that's not saying much about, <laughs> uh, you know, the protection that yeah. your politics is giving you. Um, and then, uh, but even beyond that, even beyond just sort of the raw protection, I think the other side is to think about freedom and think mm. about how much freedom there is in the society. Right. On the one hand, we think no institutions, well, that means everybody's perfectly free. Right. But if we look at where Bilbo is at the beginning of The Hobbit, he's actually so wedded to and so married to all of these way things are done, these traditions, mm-hmm. these social mores, he can't even uh, basically leave his house. I mean, he can, he can obviously, to go to Hobbiton or whatever, but right. Right. he can't really get out, and he can't think outside of this, and it takes an entire adventure, adventure in that sense to sort of liberate him to be able to think um, outside of these things and to actually have a more serious conversation or understanding and knowledge right. of the world. And I think in many ways that sort of gets at the danger of you know politics that's governed too much by civil society where people are essentially... Um, they become so wedded to these um, mores and customs and way things are done that they actually become, in that sense, maybe enslaved is too strong, mm-hmm. but they become um, basically basically bound to them, right? There, There is a, limit, a, a limitedness to that, um, that essentially, in many ways, you can sort of think of The Hobbit as being a story of liberation from the politics of the Shire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you basically mm-hmm. have Bilbo finding himself and being able to liberate, and, you know, it's a story of freedom from the politics of convention in that sense. Yeah, but it's, and it's very very insular. I mean, like in the sense that, you know, so when Bilbo does come back, he's viewed with a lot of suspicion, right, by the mm-hmm. the other members of the Shire right. because like, oh, you talk to elves, right? You talk to dwarves. <laughs> you interact with those people, right? Um, those people are not part of us, right? And and what's interesting is, I mean, in, in that sense, it is liberating, as Mitch said, but it's also the, the case that it doesn't change the system, right? The system remains the same, and he just is sort of the weirdo, right? And and later on when... He's the town at, eccentric. At the, yeah, he is the town eccentric. And when you come back from... Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, Sam becomes sort of a dominant figure there. Frodo's important. Um, Pippin and Merry are important. But again, they're still kind of the weirdos, right? Like, they are mm-hmm. they do these things. They they're go off and talk weirdos. to men. They're, they're valuable, valuable weirdos. They're leaders. Right. But but they don't. you don't get the sense um, that the Shire changes in ter- terms of its its political right. identity, right? And so how does that kind of society function? I think the, the answer is, that to get that, we have to kind of zoom out, right? We have to zoom out and think about what's going on in Middle-earth writ large. And the way it works, when it works, when it's not being taken over by the, sort of the two two man army of um, Saruman and Wormtongue, right, is it works because there's an outside power protecting right. them. Um, yes. In the early part of you know real, probably the Hobbit, although this never comes out explicitly, but then in Lord of the Rings, right, um, what you have is essentially um, the Rangers, right? The Rangers are roaming; they're protecting the Shire and other such places, right, from outsiders who would come in and cause them problems, right? And so they, they are defending it. And, and um, Aragorn refers to this very directly when he says, you know, um, we, we've been protecting them for years. And Andy, they, nerdy when we come in, they view us with suspicion, right? Nerdy deep dive. Um, who are yeah. the Rangers? Um, the Rangers, oh, man. What's well, well, not that nerdy? Yeah. It's I, mean, nerdy, I mean, basically yeah. Aragorn is a Ranger. I mean, he's, so, a ra- he's, one of, he's like right. the chief Ranger, right? right. And they're, so they're basically the men who've come out of... Um, why am I drawing a blank on the, the name? But they, they've, they're the people who are like sort of the long-lived men from um, who yeah. come from Numenor, right? So, um, so yeah. He, so there's a bunch of um, ageless dudes who rove yeah, through, through the woods. Ageless, but long-lived. Long-lived dudes who rove yeah. through the woods and basically of their own volition are setting up sort of a, super, a girdle of protection yep. around around the Shire. They're super like devoted to their obligation to society writ large. Even so, society so why, they're not so really why do they of, do right? that? Uh, that's such a good question, right? Because they're, they're super <laughs> noble, and they can, and they feel like they have to fight against the forces of evil. 
Um, I think that is a, actually kind of a little bit of a, a weak point. Like, why are they so devoted to this? Why do they do something? I mean, like, in one sense, you can think about these guys as kind of like Plato's guardians, right? I mean, like, they've ascended from the cave. They see how things are. And they have a deep, you know, sort of devotion to protecting those who are in the cave. And, and really, it's more about protecting the way their way of life than mm-hmm. helping them ascend. Because they don't really right. help the... Um, the hobbits ascend out of this. They actually want them to sort of remain in innocence, right? Remain in their, right. their illusion about how the world works. That you can just sort of have this shire, and and that's fine. That, that you know that they're functioning there, and um, they don't know that they're they're defended. I mean, Aragorn says this like you know like there are the terrible things that are really close to here, and the reason those haven't encroached is we protect you, right? Yeah. And and when I come in to the shire, right, I'm viewed with suspicion, right, because I'm this like sort of shady character, right? Even <laughs> though. I'm actually the shady character who's protecting these people. And so then when you jump to the end of Lord of the Rings, right, the, with the restoration of the kingship, um, now it's going to be protected because there, there is a king, right? And the king right. is going to, has restored order, um, and the Shire, once again, can kind of have that happy sort of, you know, innocence, right? But it, it is interesting because they, you know, again, I, I think it's, it's a problematic system in that sense, right? Because Mitch is right. I mean, you know, that, the fact that Saruman can come in with one other guy and essentially disrupt the entire system um, is kind of weird. Well, it's also but interesting th- to think about the fact that they're, I mean, they have a degree of power, whether it's through some kind of enlightenment mm-hmm. that they have to understand. But the story is about how power is corrupting. Right. You know, yes. so. Definitely. Uh, yes. It, so I don't know how well that works in terms mm-hmm. of because because mm-hmm. at least Aragorn has a kind of access to that power. He does. Yeah. 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 So yeah. we're we're laying out sort of big uh, um, overarching ideas here. You guys have mostly um, spent your time in Hobbiton so far. Yes, we have. Yes. And the Shire specifically. That's, that's where you always have to start, though. That's and that's, it is. It well, is because <laughs> yeah. uh, Tolkien's stories always fan out. They're cl- they're classic hero's journey kind right. uh, stories. Right. You start someplace small and familiar and cozy and known, mm-hmm. and you move into increasingly wild and threatening, dangerous situations mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. until you resolve the hero's journey, and then the hero's journey always has to return home. Right. This is what Star Wars doesn't do. Uh, Star Wars doesn't end up with Luke going back to Tatooine right. and becoming a, a noble right. leader amongst nope. the... Right. Jawas or something. I don't know. Um, I think the Jawas are beyond noble leaders. But, anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, that, that does happen in, in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And this is uh, very much... So, uh, Lord of the Rings pays homage to a lot of earlier preceding mm-hmm. uh, narrative myths, um, Norse mm-hmm. mythology in particular, right. yeah, and sure. Germanic mythology as sure. well. But what I struck by, and as been, as I've been thinking about pre- preparing for this podcast, is how fundamentally conservative Tolkien's mm-hmm. vision is, and I don't oh, yeah. mean that necessarily in a in a big C conservative way, but in a right. small C conservative way. Yep. Nearly every facet of of Tolkien's mythology and the stories being told in it, including the the issue of the corruption of power, is that the old ways, the original ways, the the previous ways were superior, and right. progress right. is corruptive. And yep. progress um, is degrading uh, creation. Mm-hmm. It starts mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. All the way, now I'm diving the Silmarillion here a little bit. So now we're mm-hmm. <laughs> breaking my own rule about the books and the movies. <laughs> yeah. And when the world's created, it's perfect. And yep. then a new song is introduced. And the new song is discordant. Right. Uh, and the new song is propagated by basically Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's version of Satan. Yep. Uh, and and he brings corruption and division right. into the world. And that corruption and division ultimately means that lesser 
things come out. The dwarves were never right. intended. They're lesser versions of men and elves. Right. And then even worse are the orcs. The orcs are evil versions of elves. Right. And they're brought into the system because of this discord. And right. as things go along, men live shorter lives. Mm-hmm. The, the, world, mm-hmm. the world waxes and wanes and, and, right. and grows cold and, right. and, and things die. And the elves lose their power and they leave the world. And all the great right. and good right. is slowly dying. Um, there are what there are heroic the the job of heroic people is to forestall that not to reverse it aragorn doesn't save the world he just slows the decay of the world right and that's a very fundamentally conservative approach um and ultimately i think quite depressing (laughs) but uh well it it is and it's but it's realistic in one in this sense like i mean tolkien has a very deeply christian vision obviously i mean tolkien was you know, a devout Roman Catholic. And, and so he's thinking about the world as a place that, you know, is good. It is a good creation of God, right? I mean, he's very Augustinian. But um, but also it is it is fading away too, right? And that we are we are created for something greater. Um, and, and so that this, you know, this world is always going to kind of fall short in that sense, right? So there's this great line in, um, in the fellowship, toward the end of the fellowship, um, that Tolkien has, it puts in Galadriel's mouth, right? Oh. That throughout the long ages of this world, um, I have fought the long defeat, right? Hmm. And and it's and it's that, that's the one that I always kind of come back to and think about because it's it is the long defeat. You are losing, right? The world is continuing to go down, um, but at the same time, it's worth fighting, right? Um, hmm. There are things worth fighting for, and it does matter, right? It does matter that you can preserve it um, for this time, right? Um, and that you can you can make it better for this time, right? And that's and that's what's incumbent on you to do, right? Um, as the person in, or the elf or the you know man in this moment um, is to to fight that long defeat, hmm. um, even though it is still ultimately a defeat. Um, which is I think it says a lot about how Tolkien thinks about our world and why he's you know kind of coming back to Mitch's point, why he's kind of pessimistic about um, you know the politics. Um, so he, you know, as much as possible, he himself liked to think of, you know, not think of the politics. Right? I mean, he he says very explicitly in the kind of prologue or introduction to the to the Lord of the Rings, right? That I'm I'm a Hobbit in all but name, uh, all but size, right? Um, everything else about the Hobbits is pretty much Tolkien. Like this is how he he thinks, right? Like I like good times. I like lots of food. Like I like you know I like the simple life, right? I don't right. want to think about who's protecting me, right? I don't want to think about um, who's out there keeping, you know, sort of the the, the wolves at bay. at bay or the wolves yeah. at bay, right? Um, I just want to go about my life and do my things. Um, so, you know, he, he, that's how he thinks. And I think that's why we wanted to kind of start with the Shire and start with Hobbiton. But um, but it's, he, he does, I mean, he, he is aware enough of it that he realizes there are evil things and, yes. and that they do have to be kept at bay. And so how do we think about doing that? And, that's, yeah. you know, and I think, <clears throat> I mean, just in relation to, you know, so this deep conservatism, I mean, that was one of the things I remember the first time I read, um, and that still remains that maybe my favorite chapter in the whole thing actually is Frodo's conversation with Galadriel, where yeah. that line from Andy, great chapter. Um, comes from. And I think one of the things that I remember reading the first time that struck me is, you know, Galadriel's describing that basically, even if the quest is successful and they destroy the ring, what that's ultimately going to destroy is all this power of the other rings that's been holding right. Middle Earth together right. as it is right now. Right. And so essentially Middle Earth will decline in the sense that all of these magical rings that have been holding together places like Rivendell and um, Lothlorien, right. and even to some degree, uh, you know, some of the great 
places of the elves and things like that will actually lose, you know, all that's going to be lost. Right. right. Um, and I think, you know, that gets into maybe the next, uh, you know, there, there is this, there is the conservatism. I mean, certainly that that's a deep part of what Tolkien's mm-hmm. about, you know, that the whole goal is not to somehow achieve something better because the best has already been lost. Right. It's to preserve what good is left. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but I think, but I think part of that also gets at, um, you know, essentially, essentially, when you're when 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 uh, when you're looking at Tolkien, <laughs> um, one of the things one of the things that I think one of the things that I think comes out um, very clearly is just this idea that um, <clears throat> we really, you know, when we um, sorry, I'm really having trouble getting this out here. But basically, but basically, there even even in the defense, there's evil on both sides. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, right. in other words, when you look, even even for those who are defending the right side, even for people on the right side, mm-hmm. um, it's ultimately mm-hmm. um, damaging and it's going to be evil for them. In other words, there's no there's no sort of like good. Um, there's no there, there is no inherent goodness in, in, in war and things like that. Right, right. Which I mean, you know, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, too, but. I think that's another place where his Augustinianism comes out really clearly, right? I mean, like that Tolkien, you know, is hearkening back to what St. Augustine says in The City of God when he talks about just war. And St. Augustine does believe in just war. He does believe sometimes we have to fight war. It is sometimes necessary. Sometimes there is no choice but to fight. And there is something that is better than the alternative, right? Um, And you have to fight for that. But at the same time, St. Augustine also is very clear that it's incredibly damaging, right? I mean, that when you fight a war, it is morally evil, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's sometimes a necessary moral evil. Sometimes your alternatives are moral evil or worse moral evil, right? Right. But it is bad to kill other people. It's bad to, you know, to engage in this kind of action, right? And and it is, it does cause problems. And I think you see that kind of woven into Middle Earth, right? In the way that Tolkien thinks about this. I mean, war is just so, it's so damaging. It's so destructive, right? And so, um, you know, you can still think about fighting it in better ways, right? But it still is going to have its consequences, and it's it's pretty it's pretty ugly, right? And so, people who are touched by evil, um, yes, they can recover and live productive lives, right? But they're never quite the same. I mean, after Frodo, you know, gets stabbed, um, he's he's never really never he's really never recovers. Well. Yeah. He's never well again. And when That's he finally thing. decides to depart Middle Earth, right, he says to Sam. Sam's like, I thought we were going to be able to, you know, be friends here and, you know, sort of continue our life. I mean, go back to life in the Shire. And and Frodo has this really compelling line. I mean, it always makes me cry at the end of The Lord of the Rings, right? But, it, <laughs> you know, he says that Middle Earth, you know, the Shire has been saved, Sam, but not for me. Um, I, I can't come back to it. Right? I, I, I don't have that that option. I've been too wounded, right? Mm-hmm. I have to go. Um, and, and you get that same kind of thing with, like, Eowyn and with Faramir, I mean, who end up, of course... Um, spoiler alert! Getting together, right? Um, and you just and what you're spoiling a book that's <laughs> I know <laughs> it is 63 years old. I don't feel too bad. Okay, um, so um, you know, but they you know th- they get together, and one of the things that actually brings them together is they're in that house of healing, right? And they're they're both incredibly wounded, right? Yes, and they and they do recover to live productive lives, but their their lives are touched. I mean, you're never you can't go back to being sort of that carefree. Um, person you were before, right. not that they were really carefree, but like the, even the relatively carefree person you were before, after you've been touched by evil to that extent, and yeah. so I think Tolkien's making a a really solemn point, but I think yeah. it's also a very realistic point. In some ways, it is discordant from the rest of our modern pop culture stories that we tell each yeah. other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, M- the Marvel Universe is full of progressive possibility. Right. Uh, right. Star Wars, there's always another adventure on the corner. There's always right. another right. Jedi, unless, you, there's, unless it is, in fact, actually the last Jedi. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, really Harry nice. Potter, the, that world... <laughs> 
um, explodes out into yeah. life once the evil's been dealt with. Right. All these all these right. stories are fundamentally in some ways progressive, right. and this and this story is is not. This is a, this is a fading mm-hmm. uh, this is fading mm-hmm. glory. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just run through real quick here. I'm a little more pragmatic. Um, we couldn't possibly do justice to all the various races no. and and uh, and beings and entities in Lord of the Rings, but we want to yep. just break down the politics really quick. So, yep. very at the, at the top of the food chain in terms of what Tolkien likes is Hobbiton, but the Hobbits are a very small portion of the overall they population of Middle Earth. Uh, the, the the kingdoms of men tend to be kingdoms; they tend to be right. monarchies. Right. Uh, so there's some notable exceptions to that. The 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 land the 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 kingdoms of dwarves also tend to be kingdoms. Right. In contrast to that, uh, the the um, the societies of elves tend not to be formal kingdoms. They t- uh, the leaders of yeah. the elvish peoples tend to be people who are basically put in leadership positions by by uh, mutual acclaim. Right. They're the most right. powerful, skilled, talented elves. Right. There's no election. There's no power structure. Right. It seems to be sheer unanimity of a claim that these elves yeah. ought to be leaders. So Galadriel and Celeborn and uh, and um, um, Elrond, Elrond, at the, in the in the books, right. and the movies, like they, they're just lauded as these important leaders within their communities. Right. There's very little politics there, but there is yeah. the exercise of power. Yeah, the lower and, elves actually do have the the kingdoms like with the wood elves they actually have a king right but true but it's true, true with the high elves uh the higher elves it does seem like they it's more like an aristocracy where it's the first it's very much equals. an aristocracy yeah yeah and and then of course for sort of the some of the evil entities like the goblins have kings and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh sauron seizes power through just naked abuse of power right. naked use of power he's just a classic kind of he's, tyrant, he's, he's a tyrant right? he, well he's well, he's and he's nearly satan i mean there's just, right. there's right. there's very little there's no re, there's no redeeming component there yeah it is yeah and that's and that's an interesting element of tolkien's work too i mean like Evil is so evil, right? I mean, it's implacably um, evil. It's implacably evil, and and so it's it's it is interesting. I mean, like, in the, you know, I'm going to violate your rule, but you already did, so that's fine. Yes, yeah, um, <laughs> right. If you go back into somewhere early in the parts that I have read, right, um, there is this attempt to bring Sauron back to the good, right? Because he does start off kind of. I mean, it's a lot like Satan, right? Um, good angel who falls away, kind of thing, right? And um, there is an attempt to bring him back to the good, saying like, you have to discipline yourself, you have to reject the evil, turn from this, and come back. And he refuses, right? He prefers to sort of rule in hell than bow in heaven kind of thing, right? Yes. So, um, you know, so he he turns from that. But also, like, not only him, but, like, the orcs are so deeply evil, right? And so for the most part, you feel like there's almost there's almost no redemptive possibility, right? So the one character right. who's really kind of interesting in this regard, I think, is Gollum, actually, right? So Gollum, mm. of course, gets the ring uh, of power. He holds it for hundreds of years. He is destroyed by it, right? Um, he's really turned into this really evil character, um, sort of like an orc. But there is this interesting moment. like So when after Frodo has treated him with kindness, has accepted his service, um, and you know he's led Frodo to Mordor, um, there is this interesting moment um, toward the end of the two towers where he comes back. He's decided he's pretty much decided to betray them to um, to the spider. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to try to get the ring back for himself. Right. And so um, so he's he's set up to do that. But he comes back and it's like as they're sleeping, he kind of stands stands there looking at them. And it's like he's thinking about this. He's thinking about, should I do it, right? I mean, and, and he's kind of wrestling with himself. And, and Tolkien has this moment of kind of, of introspection. He doesn't tell you exactly what Gollum's thinking, but it's like he's just struggling. Like, 
do I really do this? I mean, this guy's actually treated me pretty well. Um, and the movies and make that much up. more overt. What's There's, that? The, mo- the movies make that much more yeah, overt they do. by it's, giving Gollum a split personality, yeah. which he argues yeah, with I himself. don't really like the way they do that. But anyway, that's a, <laughs> I have lots of issues with the movies that I won't get into here. But um, but I think, you know, so in the books, it's really kind of subtle. And then Sam wakes up and says, hey, why, what are you sneaking about for or something to that effect, right? And then Gollum sort of like the moment's lost, right? Um, and Sam's like, kind of, Sam apologizes, like, oh, I'm sorry, I just you startled me, right? And, but it's like that's then Gollum's he's done, right? He decides he's going to go ahead and go and betray them, right? Right. Um, so for the most part, there it doesn't seem to be much possibility. Like once you've sold yourself out to evil, um, that you can turn in in the Lord of the Rings universe. Um, whereas no matter how good you are, there's always the possibility of falling, right? Which again gets right. like that sort of negative. Um, you really have to watch out, and they, and there, there there are real offers of corruption, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, the ring is there to be seized. I mean, Frodo offers it to Gandalf, he offers it to Galadriel, and it's it's a tough choice, right? Because they could do good with this, and yet they also say, "But I can't," because ultimately it would destroy me, and it would destroy any good I'm doing. Even though, as Mitch already referenced, Galadriel says, "But it's tragic that it has to be destroyed, right? Because when you destroy that, you're going to destroy not only the evil but also the good that's attached to it." Yeah, so I think I think one of the things tough. too, though, and and I think for the most part that's true that there's very little redemption, especially when you think about like the orcs and things like that. But I think there are a couple of exceptions that maybe bring out sort of mm-hmm. the, uh, in some ways, the Christian nature. I know we're sort of straying into religion rather than politics here, but but I'll I bring just, you back. They're totally but I was just, but I was, too, right, exactly. Uh, so. so, but I was thinking about Theoden, um, right? And Theoden yeah. is somebody who is more or less utterly corrupted, yeah. um, um, but he's ultimately redeemed. But I think what's different about Tolkien, yeah. and this sort of brings out the Christian nature of the redemption here, is that Theoden is in of redeeming himself so Theoden Correct. is essentially once he's corrupted he is he is done right. um, until of course um, Gandalf comes and actually liberates him and redeems him himself right. Right. Um, and so obviously you know this has obvious Christian implications where yep. you know we can't redeem ourselves this is something that has to mm-hmm. be done by by God yeah. um, and so and so when I think yeah and so and, th- and then I, um, so if, if I can just sort of circle back around sure. to uh, Chris's point about monarchies. I was thinking about this earlier. <laughs> okay. um, and that is this. So one of the things to think about, and one of the ways that Tolkien sets this up, and again, this sort of gets at the both the oversimplicity, but I think there's something to it that I want to talk about for two seconds, um, is that on the one hand, while everybody has kingdoms, right? So there's everybody is under some form of monarchy, except for the hobbits and maybe a couple of other little exceptions like the high elves and things like that. Um, Tolkien has this distinction between the free peoples and the uh, and the evil or right. enslaved peoples. Yes, mm-hmm. and so right off the bat, like that's sort of a political distinction, right? Being a free people, and so right. if everybody's under monarchies, like what does that mean? And I think that kind of gets back to um, earlier ideas, mm-hmm. right? So and even going back to somebody like Montesquieu, where you have the idea that you can have a monarchy and still be free. Um, and what does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. That essentially having, you know, a lot of times in today's world, you know, we sort of immediately, you know, we're so, we sort of live in the age of democracy, um, mm-hmm. you know, where we mm-hmm. think all legitimate power has to come from, from the bottom up. Um, but essentially, you know, Tolkien doesn't see things that way at all, no. right? I mean, for Tolkien, um, what really matters is how, how you know, is, is, um, is, is the use of power in favor of preservation, mm-hmm. uh, as Chris already noted, or is the use of power uh, for your own aggrandizement and thus degradation? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so in many ways, when we think about the free peoples, you know, what makes the free peoples free is, you know, you have a king ultimately like Aragorn who is using that power um, essentially for, for preservation. And one right. of the things to think about, I mean, that actually, even though 
Tolkien is not particularly Montesquieuian. You know, I've just been reading Montesquieu, so I've been thinking about this. Yeah. But in many ways, that's exactly what Montesquieu says makes a monarchy free. It's so long as the monarch is preserving the mores and the customs right. and right. the orders of the kingdom in such a way that everyone knows what the laws are. They essentially, you know, the, the monarch themselves is to that degree somewhat checked by the laws um, and things like that. Then you have freedom. And Montesquieu basically implies that you can be just as free in a monarchy as you are in a democracy so long as you have those kinds of rules in place for for a monarchy. And I think Tolkien, even though, you know, it's a little bit more about how power is used, mm-hmm. he's sort of tapping into that to some degree, right? This mm-hmm. idea that being in a monarchy, you know, democracy isn't necessarily great. And I think mm-hmm. I was getting into yeah. this with, uh, with Andy. Tolkien's yeah. view, in many ways, what we see in Tolkien is the celebration of uh, monarchy in that sense, in a good sense, um, and really... Um, He's really down on democracy. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So if you think about it, I mean, in that, in, in, in again, just sort of mm-hmm. referencing mm-hmm. his letters, I mean, one of the things that he talks about as the Allies are about to win World War II is he essentially says he, he what he sees going on in, in Europe at that time is just two different or chords fighting it out. And he said, basically, yeah. we have our or chords here in England who are just screaming for blood. They just want to slaughter. They want to bomb cities and civilians into oblivion, right. which is exactly what the Allies were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of indiscriminate slaughter on the part of the Allies. And so he saw that as very orcish right that it's essentially mm-hmm. the that those are the kinds of things that orcs do those aren't the mm-hmm. kinds of things mm-hmm. that free peoples do right. and then in the same way um in germany of course you have the same thing um you know where they're slaughtering civilians and innocents as well mm-hmm. and so tolkien saw both of those as essentially um you know as essentially orc type activities and he saw and he saw those as driven by um democratic impulses he's like the mm-hmm. reason the english are doing this is because there's mobs in the streets that are just basically mm-hmm. calling for german blood and he said you know and so basically he saw that's essentially what democracy is mm-hmm. democracy is just this mob of people running around screaming for what they want right. um rather than this sort of ordered careful thoughtful law-bound right. um, type of activity that you might get in a well-ordered monarchy I think there you can see again how he's tra- channeling Augustine, who is of course channeling Plato, right? I mean, um, and Plato, you kind of go back to the way Plato's thinking about this and saying democracy is really problematic, right? It just is the kind of the rule of the base, basest impulses. Um, what you really need is people who are well trained to do this, who are able to philosopher kings, philosopher kings, right? The, and and they can then um, take care of the governing and let everyone else do what they're best at, right? What they're what they're actually good at. Um, which brings us back to the Shire again, right? Because that's really what's happening there in its good moments. I think we see the institutional weaknesses of it too. But but in its good moments, right, it basically lets everyone just kind of go about life and not worry about it, right? Because there's a there's a person out there or people out there who are protecting you and allowing you to function. Um, that, for Tolkien, I think is the good politics as opposed to always having to play politics yourself, right? Which he finds kind of unsavory and which he also thinks leads to these the bad outcomes that Mitch has pointed us to. Can I ask a question? Because I, I will admit that I am far less familiar with the books than I am with the movies. Sure. And 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 I and maybe this is in the books far more, but one of the things I find interesting is you you had mentioned, you know, for, mm-hmm. for Tolkien like politics and religion are like those are right. Kind of bound together. Another because thing both which, are fundamentally about human nature. Right. right. Another thing right. that's often bound with politics that it feels like at least in the movies doesn't exist is much in terms of like economics or like mm-hmm. I mean, there's a sense that that for, for, or, uh, Bilbo has like treasures from his, so he's right. rich. Right. Yes. But you don't really see poor. I mean, I feel like when I, if I, it's, right. I'm thinking in my head of like mm-hmm. Rohan mm-hmm. or Gondor, mm-hmm. I'm just picturing there's like. 
there's like the royalty and then there's the then there's soldiers like every, right. everybody is or they're just sort of people who live there but you don't yeah. get this sense of economic class does that come yeah. through in other parts of his writing maybe not really, not really. um so it, this this follows mm. sort of a classic sort of Norse or Teutonic kind of mytho- mythos yeah. where you're really dealing with, or like an Arthurian legend, where you're dealing with the high class. Yep. You're dealing yep. with the warriors. But and when you're, you're creating a whole monarchies. world, though. Right. And so he really is cutting out the quote, uh, except for the Shire, he's right. cutting out the farmers who are growing the food, which will eventually be shipped to Gondor and feed the people <laughs> in the city. But does he right. talk about... The, the elves don't have that kind of commerce. Yeah. There's, some, there's a limited amount of trade and exchange, but the elves seem to live off of the nature of being in the woods, and they, they're foragers yeah. and yeah. hunters, and uh, the dwarves apparently don't eat except they drink a prodigious amount of ale um <laughs> but uh they seem to they, cram, you know, they, they gain sustenance from their mm. from their activity yeah. not from economics and so he really does cut economics out of the system with yeah. the exception of noting that the dwarves yeah. are more avaricious and that's part of their flaw and with the exception of noting some sort of accumulation of wealth and dis- wealth disparity in the shire there's very little concern for economics here well, and, and you just like have things like, you know, when um, Pippin is going through Minas Tirith, he notices that like a lot of it, parts of it are kind of boarded up and not really active in the way that they had been. So the city has kind of fallen into decay. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as you're noting sort of that kind of, um, you know, I guess um, urban decline, right, if you will, right, um, then he, he notes that. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think he really... He does that's the threat the of Mordor side. and not and the fall of the Kingdom of Gondor, right. not an economic problem. Right, and, and like on top of that, like too, yeah, it's not really about an economic problem. And and like when you think about the economics, it doesn't make a ton of sense, right? Because like for example, coming back to the point about how evil evil is, right? For him, I mean, like the devastation of Mordor is just a kind of over the top, obscenely crazy evil, right? Like it's just destroyed. You can't do anything with this. Like, what would be the point of being like that destructive, right? I mean, like you can't even. There's not even like possible, you know, water, right, to drink. Like mm-hmm. the the land is just absolutely devastated. And like you kind of have to ask, like, to what end, right? And I think the end is illustrating his point about sort of how he's thinking about the political and religious side. But I mean, from an economic standpoint, I mean, this is a completely useless land and the suggestion is that this is what they want to do to everything and then you have to ask and then what right like then everyone dies because no one has anything to live off of once you've destroyed all the land so economically i don't think there's much of a system in which isn't really what tolkien's thinking but okay but let me ask you this question because you guys are are at least as far as i know you're political science teachers right (laughs) so so as as you use i mean because one of the things we talked about with star wars and i think we'll do throughout the series is like how useful are these for talking about things Mm -hmm. if something I presume in politics and thinking about human yeah. nature, like yeah. economics is really important, yes. in ter- yep. right? Like, yep. so does this lose some utility because it ignores that, or are other things about power can we use as sort of metaphors for thinking about economic power? So I think you know one of the thing one of the things that has very much influenced um, us and does and perhaps Tolkien would resist a lot more um, is essentially you know one of the one of the major. You know, basically, Karl Marx has linked for us the idea of economics and power. I mean, mm-hmm. we essentially mm-hmm. can't conceive of politics and 
economics without immediately linking it to power, pr primarily because of, I mean, obviously there are other people too, but Marx is the major influence here. And Tolkien really isn't thinking in those terms. Mm -hmm. His thinking about power, as Andy has already pointed out, is very much rooted in an older tradition that thinks about power more in terms of, and I think Chris did a nice job describing it, more in terms of like, what are sort of the cosmic goods that we're trying to preserve? And it's sort of mm -hmm. like very much bound up in the, you know, sort of like, you know, great chain of being idea from medieval yep. times yep. and things yep. like that. And so he's not thinking so much in terms of um, pow power in our in our sort of modern sense mm -hmm. in that way, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I think that also gets to you know. But he's living in a world that I mean, Tolkien is living in right. a world where that's very much real. He is, yeah, um, and he resists <laughs> it. Yes, mm -hmm. he doesn't like he doesn't like it, and right. I think, um, and and I and I think part of what he's pointing to in in even in Lord of the Rings too is basically saying you know whenever whenever those sorts of well, I guess I guess maybe I should back up for a second. I think the answer to that question is is, is just another area, which is just to say that Tolkien sees power um, as 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 basically corrupting, right? So mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. one of the things to see in Tolkien, I think this is somewhat, I think this is where Tolkien gets some some things right and some things wrong actually. Mm -hmm. um, so Tolkien sees power as basically when whenever you see power, it it uh, is almost automatically corrupting. Um, and this goes all the way back, I mean, to what Chris was referencing in the Silmarillion. I mean, essentially, the introduction of evil is the attempt to take power away um, from, 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 essentially, mm -hmm. from essentially God, right, Ilavatar. Mm -hmm. And, um, and mm -hmm. basically, the only time power is good is when it's been specifically authorized, in some sense, by mm -hmm. um, God and by the um, good demigods. Of, yeah. um, of when you have a right to exercise it. Right, when you have a right to exercise yeah. it. And other than that, like power, power is just a problem. This is why right. Hobbiton is so good because nobody's trying to really exercise no those kinds power. of power. No one's trying to seize power. Exactly. Um, and this is why occasionally you have good power. Like you've got Aragorn because he's been authorized to use power right. or Gandalf because he's right. essentially an angel who's been right. given these powers to, to use. Um, but any, any other time, right, when you see power, right. like, I mean, even Gandalf himself is very limited in the power he can use when he's right. offered the ring when he's offered access to right. all of all power right essentially the power to yep. work his will however he would want he refuses it because he said i would actually you know and this is a very telling thing in the early fellowship where he says i would become too powerful right. and because right. i would be have right. be become too powerful i would be able to work my will in whatever way i wanted and at first it would be great you know he actually tells mm -hmm. Frodo like mm -hmm. i would set everything right everything would be everything would be good and then kind of the, what he suggests and this is what's sort of interesting. I mean, you sort of think about like Handmaid's Tale today, right? He sort of suggests he would become this sort of puritanical leader where everyone would be forced to follow his conception of morality, his way of thinking everything ought to be done. And even though it would be a quote unquote good way, it would be a place where there would be no freedom, no ways to actually live a good life because you would be constantly constrained by all these rules. That's kind of what Gandalf suggests. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so in that sense, the power would be corrupting. He would be corrupt even, even as he was trying to execute goodness. Right. Um, um, like totalitarian power is fundamentally mm -hmm. bad, right? And if even if it's being used toward allegedly good ends, and that's yeah. the problem with the One Ring, right? Is it right. leads to that? Let, kind let of me power. go just a step further. Yeah. We're verging into the next section of our questions, which is yeah. what other political concepts do we see here? Sam sort of asks, yeah. how do we teach this book, or how yeah, do we yeah. what do we mm -hmm. see this book illustrating? And um, 
Max Weber classically has three conceptions of the sources mm. of, of authority right. in mm. the political system. You either have authority through your personal charisma, you sort of just um, you're you're recognized as being a leader, or um, because of your personal attributes, or you have power through tradition. There's sort of like mm. there's lineage, or yeah. there's or the societal mores that cause you yeah. to be respected, respect right. for the elderly, for example, right. yep. or there's power through legal systems. There's power mm. through the rules that are created in society, mm. and that that's where we get the power of our president um uh i'm old enough now to be elected president and although that's incredibly <laughs> improbable if some weird circumstance happened and i became president of the united states it wouldn't be because of my personal charisma or my personal appeal and it wouldn't be because of any sort of traditional allegiance to me it would be because the constitution grants me certain powers as president mm-hmm. but that's the kind of power that tolkien most explicitly rejects yeah. yeah, in that way, Tolkien uh, f- strains against modernity. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, his his elves have power because of their charisma, yep. and to a certain extent, Aragorn has power because of his charisma as well, and he has a direct yep. link lineage, link to the elves. Mm-hmm. But he al- but there's al- also power through tradition. Uh, Denethor, as the last steward of Gondor, has power through the, the tradition yeah. of his of his position, and the mm-hmm. kings of Gondor, like Aragorn, have power because right. of their tradition. Yeah. Uh, and Oh yeah, I would say it's fundamentally a patrimonial system. I mean, not, yes, like and then yeah. char- I think he's skeptical of charismatic authority. I mean, in, in, except insofar as you can use charisma within the the sort of patrimonial traditional authority you should have. Right. I mean, like so, if you're Aragorn and you have some of that, and you can use it to help you reestablish the authority you should have anyway. Mm-hmm. Great. But if you were just using charismatic authority, that's kind of questioning right, right. It's, it's it's within your uh but part of his, the goodness is showing the restraint yeah. of your on your own charisma mm-hmm. elrond is a charismatic leader galadriel right. is a charismatic leader right. but mm-hmm. they also constrain right. themselves yeah. right. they, they don't yeah. take the ring although on the rational legal point he doesn't reject the rule of law either though he does want to say like rule of law matters so for example um toward the end of lord of the rings when you know aragorn is now as king protecting the shire mm-hmm. right um, from people in, encroaching on it, he, he makes a law that you cannot go in there if you are a man, right? You're not allowed to go in the Shire. And so when he comes to visit the hobbits, they have to come out and meet him at the edge because he respects his own law, right? He's mm-hmm. Even though he has this authority, even though he's the one who's made the law, he's made it so that people won't come in and abuse them, which obviously he's not going to do, um, yet he respects that law, right? That they they will come out and meet him. He will not come in to Hobbiton, right? So, so there is, I mean... I think that rule of law piece is still there, but you're right. I mean, he definitely does not want a kind of rational legal kind of setup as much as a you have this authority because it's been granted to you. And as long as you're just exercising the authority that you legitimately have through this grant, right, then we're good. And once you go beyond that, then we start having problems. And and just just to back up one more time, like you're noting like this, you know, the power of your grant and this grant is not from democracy, right? And I think that's the key thing. Not this grant is from sort of no. the great chain of being or, you know, right. ultimately yes. tracing. Its Can you just really quickly God. for listeners explain what the great chain of being is? That's, an, that's yeah. an important concept. Yeah. So, so for those who of you who may be Bethel students, hopefully you remember this from CWC <laughs> or humanity covered in both. But nonetheless, for those of you who are not, so basically www.bethel.edu. Come on in. Sign on as a student. Full recruiting season. <laughs> At any rate, um, so the great chain of being is just the idea that, that essentially there there is an order in the world, right? So essentially, yeah. if you say um, if you there there is if you if you think of sort of a hierarchical order to the world, um, this starts out with God, of course, at the top, um, and then just below God, God has created slightly lesser beings than Himself, which are angels, and then below the angels, um, it depends on how detailed and you know there are different traditions on this, but you know below angels then are men, um, mm-hmm. and hu- 
human beings. And uh, then below human beings, you have um, uh, animals. And then below animals, you have plants. And then below plants, you have other things in the world. Minerals. And then below them, you actually have demons yeah. and things like that. So, right. and, 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 and at the bottom, you have sort of uh, sat- satanic forces. Right, 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 right. Exactly. exactly. And, and even within that, within the men, bit, you have, within yeah. men, you can disaggregate, right? right? And so the great chain of being can account for things like aristocracy. Right. Um, and right. the value of, of, of certain uh, mm-hmm. classes mm-hmm. of people over yep. others. I mean, in a sense, yeah. it's saying it's it's Plato's myth of metals. Only you're saying this is real, right? I mean, right. like Plato says, you know, like, hey, some people have gold souls, silver souls, bronze souls. You can't not be what your soul is, right? And the idea was like you can order society this way, but it's not really true, right? Um, and what you get in Christendom in the Middle Ages is saying, no, this is true, right? I mean, God's at the top. Everyone has kind of their place in the societal order, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't try to not be in your place in the societal order, right? If you're a peasant, that's who you are, right? Um, so be a good peasant. I mean, be fulfill your role in in the great chain of being. Don't try to become a, a lord. If you're just a mere lord and you're not meant to be king, don't try to be king, right? Um, that there there are distinctions to sort of you know everyone has their calling and their their in Tolkien's terms, I guess, the, you know, we've been using uh, the power grant, right? This is what you're given to do. So do mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious it's if, if any of you have stories of using this in the classroom, using this text in the classroom. Tolkien? Yeah, for political science. So I, uh, I have done it. I actually so tried to use it, and we watched a little bit of the movie, and I kind of brought in some of the books in Quest one time. I had kind of a mixed experience with them because I didn't make them actually read it. It was too much. Um, so I tried to use it kind of as a way to structure it and to talk about certain concepts. And I kind of liked it. I got some positive feedback on it. But I felt like I would to really do it really well, I would have ne- needed to have them read the mm-hmm. Fellowship. I mostly sort of structured around the Fellowship of the Ring, just the first of the, the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I didn't feel like I had the space to really give them that reading. Um, so I felt like I, it felt a little superficial in that sense, but it, it was nice in the sense that it connected with a lot of these sort of power concepts um, that I wanted to talk about there. Cause we talk a lot about power dynamics in political quest. Mm-hmm. And so I, mm-hmm. I have used it in there and then I've used it as examples elsewhere. Yeah. First. I, I will say I actually have, accidentally used this once in class um, and it was not in a political <laughs> science class because I am not a political scientist. Right. I was, t- it was a, it was a freshman seminar course or internal liberal arts. I can't remember what mm-hmm. it was called at the time. Um, this is one of my first years teaching. It was when the movies were first coming out and oh, yeah. um, one, it was, you know, probably a class of about 10, 15 students. And uh, one of my students came in and we were just ta- sort of talking about what they did over the weekend. And she said, talked about how she had found, in the park target parking lot this piece of jewelry which was really like kind of big and gaudy and she thought it was fake whatever but she's like well i brought it to a jewelry store just to sort of see if in case it was you know something and um and she said oh the guy at the jewelry store said it wasn't worth anything and then he immediately wanted to buy it from me so she brought it to another place which she trusted more and found out it was actually like this really like they're actual real gemstones and they're really valuable Mm. and so we had this long conversation and as we were talking about it, like we all started to, it, it changed from this thing that she found to this fairly large sum of money. And we all started talking about, talking about it as if it was ours and talking about the money as if we already had it in our hands. Yeah. Mm, and it was so, it was about 15 minutes in. I don't know what the class topic was, but we were talking about this. And I was like, oh, it's the ring of power. Like, like yeah. we all, like we all moved from this thing and like everybody wanted it and desired it and it became something else and we started to talk about individually we started to talk about it yeah. as if it was ours and i yeah. thought by the end of this are we going to slaughter each other and then <laughs> the right. last person standing is going to walk out precious. with this like gaudy brooch or like what was going to happen so it was our birthday present 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was actually a really great moment of like, yeah. this is what he's talking about. Like, like, yep. and it it, yep. it went from yep. a benign conversation to like, I felt pretty dark about about fifteen minutes in. Like, we need to not do this. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And notice Sam's here. We don't know where those students are. That's right. <laughs> true. So I'm gonna that's a lovely brooch <laughs> ring. Yeah, that's that's right. what's, what's that ring? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I will, I'll say I've used this to talk about the international relations approach known as neoconservatism, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, folks in the in the, in the George W. Bush administration, like Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz, and now some of the folks in the Trump administration, like uh, Mike Pompeo, mm-hmm. uh, do fundamentally see the world that ha- um, as p- as having implacably evil forces in it mm-hmm. uh that there are some forces that simply cannot be bargained with cannot be yeah. deterred cannot be reasoned with they can only be confronted and destroyed for the good of everyone right. and that's how uh tolkien views mordor and views sauron right and he views saruman as essentially a corrupted a force of good that's been corrupted um, irredeemably by evil. And so right. uh, the, the, think fa- the famous uh, quote from the Bush administration, if you're not, if you're not with us, you're, you're against us, right? And um, sort of thinking like an axis <laughs> of evil. The Lord of the Rings does give us uh, analogies to that kind <laughs> of thinking. Um, it's, it's fundamentally not realist. It's, it's fundamentally not right. sort of uh, pragmatist. It, it, it's really, it really is absolutist. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Manichaean in certain kinds of ways. I need to transition us, guys, yep. to, um, to really quick. To, we're, moving, we're moving close to lightning round now. All right, all right. <laughs> but with that in mind, with some of these concepts in mind, I need you to give Tolkien a grade. We're not talking about a literary grade here, not talking about how good the overall yeah. body of work is, but how accurate is his political conception of the world? Hmm. I went first last time, so. <laughs> Which is like, uh, I think that's I think that's really hard. I mean, I yeah. So, I, and I think I think it's I think it's difficult because on the one hand, it, it Tolkien. It's difficult to grade Tolkien for his political accuracy because if we're purely looking at like, does he get politics itself right? And I think we've already pointed out there are a number of holes in this. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. clear what the motivation of people yeah. like the Rangers are. I mean, we know right. that they're noble and they want to fulfill their calling and. Right. Um, but self-interest seems to be set to the right. side. Right, self-interest right. is set to the I mean, side, and if we learn anything from you yeah. know James Madison and things like that, everybody is self-interested. Right. right? I mean, right. the question is, right. can you use it for good? Right. Um, yeah. So you know, and those are just co- totally foreign things to Tolkien. So if we're just purely looking at like on that grade, I mean, Tolkien's pretty abysmal. I mean, he's probably yep. like a D, maybe. I mean, because you know, you have occasions where he gets where there are power plays. You know, you got mm-hmm. Worm Tongue, mm-hmm. for example, who's a nice example of a political. He's player. conniving. He's conniving, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and Saruman to some degree, and right. you've got ideas of the rule of law, but you know, but it's really not played out that well. On the other hand, I think, and I, I don't think that's really the level that Tolkien's working at, though. And I think most right. of the time, what Tolkien's working at is sort of a, a, a sort of a, a level above that, yeah. where he wants to yeah. say what's the nature of reality and how we think about broader things like power or mm-hmm. corruption mm-hmm. or right. um, you know or even or even civil society itself right what's the nature how does civil society work and what does it look like and I think in that sense he gets a lot of things right I mean that's where you know some of the stuff that we've been talking about I think mm-hmm. comes in mm-hmm. and, and, so, and so in those senses even though yeah. I disagree a little bit with him on some areas like exactly how power works and I think Sam already brought up you know some of the problems there with economics um so in that with that in mind i think my overall grade for him is going to be is going to be a, a low b okay yeah yeah i'm I, no i agree with that i think that's that's a good summary of sort of the what's going on that's good what he gets right and what he just kind of completely misses but doesn't necessarily intend to get right yeah. i mean um because his his thoughts 
his his reflection on the corrupting power of evil is very good. So I was thinking B as well. I mean, um, you know, maybe I mean I could be persuaded B minus, right? But I think there's enough good there that I I would give him a solid one. But I think that yeah, the the sort of neglect of self interest is a big problem. Yeah, I won't give a grade because I'm not a political science teacher, so I won't give a grade. <laughs> but 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 but, but, but I want I want to agree with with something Mitch said and put a finer point on it. That that mm-hmm. what I think is really really great is is how he discusses power to the point where you can't watch those movies or read those books without thinking of possessing the ring yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mm-hmm. then, and, and you, so what he illustrates is he takes something from the fiction yep. and you imagine it in your hand and you start to like this, like the brooch, you start yeah. to imagine what you would yeah. do with it yeah. and you quickly move from the good you could do to what you could do. Right. You know, and that's mm-hmm. different. Right. And, uh-huh. and and uh-huh. and you feel yourself right. corrupt. Yep. I mean, yep. spend fifteen minutes today thinking about what you would do with the Ring of Power, and you'll f- you'll feel its corrupting power on you, and it doesn't exist. Right, right. right. Like mm. like that's. I think that's mm. as as a tool is really interesting. Um, so I think it's 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 wildly successful in terms of thinking about that. Yeah. And and I think that's one thing that the movies kind of miss, right? In in some ways, or at least don't develop as well as the books, right? Um, because it it shows. The movies, I think, make the corrupting power of the ring too overwhelming in some ways, um, in that like Frodo gets almost instantly corrupted. And this is actually much more impressive in the books, because Frodo is really noble. He is a really good guy. He's a prince among hobbits. I mean, everyone talks about what a you know, deep character he has, and so on and so forth. And and he resists the ring for a long time. And so when he becomes corrupted by the ring, and he does really at some level become corrupted at the end, right? I mean, um, it's really shocking in that sense, mm-hmm. right? It's like, wow, even Frodo. Right, yeah. is going to fall to this ring. I mean, so uh, and that—that's his point, right? When when Gandalf and Galadriel um, and others, you know, Faramir are resisting taking the ring, um, they're right. You can't do this. You just can't because it will—it will corrupt you. And so they almost have to sacrifice Frodo. It's like you go do it. Um, you're less vulnerable, and hopefully you'll endure long enough to actually complete the destruction. And it right. barely works, and it's only right. with a little bit of kind of luck thanks to sort of a big assist from Gollum, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which which kind of in some ways brings us in full circle back to where um, we were starting out with like basically, uh, you know, what, what Tolkien isn't worried about, I think, is is practical politics in the sense that yeah. he thinks yeah. if you get involved in it, like you inherently are going to come out dirty from this, right? Yeah. You mm-hmm. you can't come in, you can't go in and do this right. and remain clean. And that's why, the hob- that's why the hobbits are where it's good because you don't have to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. there are other people who do have to do that and Tolkien sees them as nobles someone like Aragorn but you know but they're going to be touched by this they're going to be corrupted in some sense they're not going to be able to live the fullest best life that a person can possibly live and so I think in that sense he thinks you know if you get involved in politics like you are in some ways inherently um, you're going to be dirty right you're going to be corrupted in that sense um, as I think part of what Tolkien's is doing. that I mean well I but what's, all, what's also okay. field, for too far afield but I I wonder if that's quite true though in the sense that if it is your calling like if you're Aragorn and you are meant to be king, if you're Aomer and you're meant to be king, I, I don't know. Like, are you are you fundamentally like that? That is what you do. That is that is what you're you're supposed to do. So I don't know if it's corrupting in that sense. Like it, it, I think if it's if it's not power you're supposed to exercise, then that's right. Yeah. Um. But I think I think he does have space for you know someone to be to be almost wholly good and still rule, but. But it better be what you're supposed to do, and you better do it right, or you end up as Denethor, or you end up as what? You know, right. So I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess what I was getting at is, yeah. in the sense that they rule, they don't rule, and maybe this is maybe this is 
so yes, maybe I put it wrong, but but one of the way one of the things I think about is you don't rule in the sense that you uh, engage in politics using your own will. Right is what I should yes. say. Um, yes, oh, and that is that. and that is right. The place of the will is essentially yep. the problem here. Uh, and, yeah. and I think I think another piece of this is that you can't, as a people, we can't just walk away from it because like right. they couldn't just be right. like, right. oh, nobody right. wants the ring. Let's yeah. just bury it. like like. Yeah. Like right. you, you can't. So so right. somebody has to. Yeah, you can't cast the, the Great Sea, which right. is suggested, right? Right. Nope, that's not an option. It is our responsibility. We yeah. can't send it over the sea. It's ours. We and that's very it. Augustinian too. Yep. Like like, yep. like right. it's like the just war thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Right, I gotta switch you guys to uh, the lightning round. Uh, your grade, Professor Moore. Oh, yeah, yeah. fine. Well, we're not letting you off the hook. You're you an made easy us give a grade. grade. <laughs> I'm gonna. Um, I, I think this is I, th- I think this is a fable ultimately, and it's uh-huh. f- and it's far removed from the reality of politics. Yep. Um, and I can't give a fable higher than a C plus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fair. You're, you're so, a hard grader here. Yeah. So. I grant that. That's why Aesop didn't uh, didn't major in political science. <laughs> that's right. That is right. We'll get to, we'll get to Aesop. <laughs> um, right. Classics major. So okay. So lightning round now. You gotta keep your answers short, and I will time you out. Okay. So we're giving some awards out. First, the Machiavelli Award. Who is the shrewdest politician in Middle Earth? Gandalf. I think he's he's a great counselor to kings. Um, he's almost always right. And if when the moment arises in Minas Tirith, he can actually um, govern a city and and direct war effort um, in a pinch and does a pretty decent job at it. Doesn't hurt that he's an angel. And yeah, and and in, as it turns out, has one of the three Elvish rings. So of power. Yep. Yeah. He's got a few assets on his side. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess uh, when I was thinking about this before, I was thinking I was actually thinking not Gandalf but Saruman. <laughs> mm. um, and he tries. He tries. <laughs> well, and not, and not only does he try. One of the reasons I was thinking Saruman is because he, for and for many years he's actually using his influence yeah. in ways that people don't recognize. That's true. And so he's That's very fair. subtle about it. You know, he's yep. on the White Council, but he's actually orchestrating his own rise to power. Yep. Um, and so in that way, I think Saruman. You know, he's and he's also got his agent in mm-hmm. Rohan and all that stuff. And yeah. so that's very Machiavellian in terms of like, what can I constantly be doing to increase yep. my own power right. and I have to that's say good. Saruman mm-hmm. as well because I can't say Gandalf is Machiavellian that just doesn't work for right. me right so. hold on we're gonna come because Machiavelli you know the, the good the, you know the good ruler He's the prince must learn to be evil right. yeah so yeah alright let me go to the next one um which I want to ask uh, Professor Bramson about. Professor Bramson is an, as an Africanist. Uh, the I, I had named this the Asa Maglin Robinson Award, which asks, which award, which says, how does the system fall apart? But uh, should we be calling this the Achebe Award? The Achebe Award, yeah, that would be a good name for it too. Okay, so um, the, so this is the Achebe Award. The Achebe how, and Robinson Award. <laughs> there we go. How do um, how mm. does well, what uh, we we know a little bit? Tolkien wrote a little yeah. bit of what happens after the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. but it's mostly wrapping up the lives of the people of the characters who existed in Lord of the Rings. Sort mm-hmm. of what J.K. Rowling has done with <laughs> telling us what happened to Harry Potter in his mm-hmm. midlife, yep. which is frankly kind of depressing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but what um, does what is I think I I think I'm going to go first here to give you guys a chance to think about this, but. Um, they they say very clearly at the end of, at the end of the books, Lord of the Rings. Now is the age of men, right? And basically, mm-hmm. all of these are the races: the Elvish races, the um, the Dwarvish, the Ents, the um, everything else begins to recede into memory and myth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that tells us that what might be coming along is is a more pragmatic sense of politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but and maybe that's how the system falls apart. Mm-hmm. But so what, the ascendancy of political science. The then. ascendancy of political science, the age of men. Yep. I mean, well, 
in in some ways, like Tolkien, what Tolkien is doing is creating a myth for England, right? Because it, it's missing. You need you need a myth, and so one way to think about this is: Are we Middle Earth, right? I mean, is this is this what it is, right? And so then I think, yeah, that's basically right. My my very short conceptual kind of answer to how things fall apart is: I think it's always the same for Tolkien, and it's when people go beyond the power that they're they're granted to have, right? And once once you start doing that, um, it falls apart. So when when you're you know when you grab the ring. Um, and you know, um, and you corrupt your kingdom, right? Um, then it falls apart. When you're a steward and you refuse to re- relinquish your power, that's that's a that's a disaster, right? Um, and you know, I- I- any point when when a any, any entity grabs power that is not theirs, um, then it's going to be a, a problem. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I get. I, I really don't have too much to add to those. I think those are both good. Um, good ways to think about. It. I mean, the only other thing to think about is, you know, just to say all this corruption and this falling in some ways, you know, goes back to what we were saying. Uh, you know, especially Chris. I think it was Chris. You brought it up before. I mean, just from the beginning, you have the, you know, the basically the, the Satan character weaving these things in, and so that's. Yeah. I mean, if you want to yeah. really trace it back, I mean, for Tolkien, it just really is religious. I mean, it just goes all the mm-hmm. way back. I mean, it's you know the devil. It's the devil, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Um, but the devil expressed in, you know, the basically seeking your own will, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so at odds with that, let's give out the Erasmus Award. Um, you guys have already used up Gandalf for your Machiavelli. Who's the most noble well, politician? So. Gandalf. Yeah. There we <laughs> go. Sam, Sam Gandalf still has Gandalf too, available. Yeah. He, yeah. He, only, he, he only played his Saruman card. He didn't play sure. his Gandalf Who's card. the most noble politician in Middle-earth? <laughs> This is actually, I mean, so Gandalf's actually a very reasonable answer for that, I think. The other obvious reasonable answer is Aragorn. I might actually mm-hmm. want to go with Faramir, though, because mm-hmm. I think um, Faramir turns down the ring in a moment when it would be incredibly useful, when he could have easily taken it without anyone sort of knowing about it. Um, and he also is the steward who yields his power, right? Unlike his father and unlike Boromir, who doesn't resist the temptation of the ring, his brother, older brother, right? Um, Faramir understands his place. He understands that he's been given authority to exercise, but only in trust. Um, and he hands it over, and then he exercises subordinate authority. That's an incredibly hard thing to pull off, um, and he does it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Faramir. I'm sorry, you're 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 all wrong. And it's Samwise Gamgee. Oh no, um, that's the next one. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> now, I'm, actually, I have a different. I'm going to take on this. So, uh, Samwise Gamgee wins the Erasmus Award. Because after returning to the Shire, after cleansing yeah. the Shire, yeah. um, he reluctantly accepts the mayorship of the Shire yeah. and uh, rules an unprecedented seven terms or seven something terms. like that. <laughs> and uh, forty nine years to great yeah. acclaim. Yes. Uh, yes. I he's um, he is he is certainly the most noble yeah. of, of all politicians. That sounds like a certain barely beating out by the way Galadriel. Who um, and this is not in the not in the movies or the books, but after the fall of the ring and before she departs for the the, the lands in the west, yeah. she uh, goes to Mirkwood and she clears out all the evil. Uh, she does her last good. She's basically George Washington. She has all of her last good deeds and then she steps down from power. Yeah. and that's a pretty noble thing too. Yeah. I- the point about Sam is fair, except that I would say that it's a very unpolitics. Like, like he's not. It's not politics in the same way that the the men are doing. Right? It's barely to the point about the Shire. It's barely political. But yeah. All right. Okay. He's just, he's just giving speeches at Midsummer Night Day. Basically. Let's. Well, then, all right. Let's. Well, I'll give you your chance to, to explain then. So let's take the last award. This is Sam's award. This is the Leslie Nope Award. Uh, what? Uh, what character? Um, uh, how? What? How do you want to say it, Sam? It's a sort of unconquerable positivity in the face of sort of the and most daunting hardness. of situations. Yeah, and try hardness. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, who tries the hardest? 
this See, is, this is where I right? give Sam. Yeah. This is where I totally give Sam Wise the award. I mean, he's he's always looking at the positives. He's always thinking about how they're going to succeed. He's he's still hoping they're going to get out of Mordor, even when they have like no water. Right? Mm-hmm. He takes he optimistically is like carrying his like his dishes around, his pans around, so that he can cook, even though they're having to subsist off Lemba bread. Um, and and then yeah, he does come back, and you know he agrees to take on this mayoral responsibility. Um, he's he's very positive no matter what the circumstances yeah. are. And we don't know for sure that among those cooking materials there wasn't a waffle iron because that would be really on brand for that would be very on brand, brand yeah, for Leslie. No, right. uh, the only other person <laughs> I was thinking about um, was actually it was actually the like the two younger hobbits, so Pippin. Yeah, yeah. Um, for example, I mean, as somebody who's constantly sort of chipper and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know doing so, he's always doing stupid things, but he's mm-hmm. you know but he's always happy about it and sort of you know rolling along. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys are going to hate this answer because I'm not even sold on it myself. So this is something you have to see. Yeah. <laughs> Andy and I already gave the right answer. So yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and give your answer. But uh, I'm going to give my Leslie Nope award to Tom Bombadil. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom did not make the that. movies. So if you've only seen the movies, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But there's this. Uh, imagine yeah. uh, if the Joker from Batman was entirely good humored and good spirited. Um, and yeah almost godlike um it's not clear where tom bombadil fits into the mythos that tolkien has weaved but he does seem to be incredibly powerful and yet utterly unconcerned with the affairs of reality (laughs) um he is uh he's a he's a he's a being who's encountered by the hobbits early on in their adventure and he's utterly good Mm -hmm. he's utterly Mm -hmm. um Yep. Sylvan, he's he's part of creation. He's yep. he's bucolic yep. in the in the in the deepest sense of the word, but um, also utterly un- unconcerned with the affairs of men. The they discuss giving the ring to him because he probably wouldn't be corrupted by it. Right. But they said that he's right. so unconcerned he'd probably just lose it. Right. Um. And so, but he's he's um imp- uh, impossibly good spirited. Right. He no, I think that's actually a, a really fair answer. I mean, so. Among the things Mitchell and I were nerding out about yesterday was talking about <laughs> Tom Bombadil and who he is, and I mean, you had a slightly different take, but I, the best I can land is he's like almost like it's like he, they're he and Goldbear Adam and Eve, right? They're in a state of innocence. They're mm-hmm. like before everything else, and that's why you can't give the ring to him because he can't understand like what this would be, right? Why this matters? It's like you know if you're trying to explain to Adam and Eve, right? Um, sin before sin, like what? Okay, fine, I'm gonna go, you know, do whatever we do in the Garden of Eden, right? But um, but I don't. I don't get it. Right? I don't have a knowledge of good and evil, and it's like that's kind of Tom Bombadil. He 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 has some sort of in, intuitive sense of the good, and that you should you know rescue the hobbits when they, they're in these difficult situations. But he doesn't really have a concept of evil. So yeah, that's that's fair enough. But he's not a tryhard, though. He's not really. No, he's, he's sort he, of like he's out, he's, in fact he's ultimately kind of a slacker. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he just sort of bounces around. You know who's the slacker? And I have a problem with this. The Eagles. Can we just be? Can I be annoyed at the Eagles yeah, for a minute? Yeah. There's this race the of extremely well, oh. them too. <laughs> okay, them too. too. Um, but uh, there's this race of extra large, intelligent, Powerful, sentient birds. birds yeah. They only show up a couple times, and they're always Deus Machinas. Yeah, but they're part of the good, the good kingdoms of Middle Earth too. Eagles, get off your butt. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the ring in the, in the in the fires of Mordor, and this whole thing can be over really quick. Yeah. You don't have to walk to Mordor; you can fly there. Yeah. Come on, this is—I I understand they're not a taxi service, yeah. but don't they have? But they kind of are too? sometimes. They so. kind of are, but only when they want to, right? I mean, but you're right. I mean, this is like there's actually a two-minute video you can watch on YouTube where 
they like basically have the eagles flying like um Frodo into mortar and dropping the ring and they're like boy that was easy can you imagine if he had to walk yeah that would have been stupid <laughs> it would take it forever so yeah that is you know in every in every series i think there's always that that element of this is the the problem that you can't quite explain um when we get to harry potter we'll, we can talk about some of the the things that aren't quite explainable there too, uh-huh, but um, uh-huh. there's always those little inconsistencies when you create a world, and I think that is a problem for him. Like, um, why don't why don't you at least try to appealing to them? Like, could you fly us in? Mm-hmm. Like, would that be possible? I mean, I think if, if if Tolkien were to give an answer, he might say, "Well, the enemy also has winged beings, and the eagles would have been obvious and vulnerable. The, the hobbits kind of creep along the ground, and so maybe it would not have been as easy for the eagles to fly in before." Before Sauron's destroyed, as you think, but but the thing is, the Hobbit plan seems seems like a hail mary, though. Right, it still seems like a better (laughs) option, right? I mean, (laughs) than the Hobbit plan. But anyway, I mean, I mean, at one point, Tolkien actually even addresses this. Like, oh, does he? Yeah, yeah, wait, where is it? In one of his letters. Okay, somebody raised this to him. I haven't heard that one. Cool. And uh, um, he basically gives part part of the answer is what. you know, the obvious is where he says, this is, this is a story. Um, and yes, maybe you could imagine that scenario, but right. you know, the Eagles are mostly meant to be there, you know, to sort of pick up things that are, that are dropped. Um, but then he also does, I mean, yeah. he uses the same thing where he says, you know, there's the Nazgul, they, you right. know, it's not so right. easy. And, and it also discounts the power of, uh, Sauron himself. I mean, right. just that Sauron before the ring is destroyed right. has an immense amount of, you know, just sort of Right. power right we don't really right. know what he can do right but he's got the great eye right and so yeah obviously right. he's keeping good out of mordor well and so. plus there's a right. there's a significant amount of the book after the ring is destroyed there's a yeah. significant amount of return of the king do you want the walk back too <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right no exactly exactly so that's why you send the eagles in like okay yeah. Yeah. we're done with this now let's get right. them out of there and move on <laughs> so yep all right, guys. This has been this has been really fun. We've got to oh, yeah. go. Uh, I feel like we've. I don't think we've just we've settled the politics of Lord of the Rings. No. But I hope if you if you if you enjoy the books, if you enjoyed the movies. I hope you've enjoyed this too. Yeah. We will uh, we will be back pr- next week with a actual politics podcast. Uh, but after that, sometime after that, we'll pick up we'll pick up this series next time with you want a little drum roll. <laughs> we'll be talking about the politics in the world of Harry Potter. All right. All right. Good deal. Thanks so much guys. Go Royals.